Hey everybody, Brian McClanahan here. Are you looking for a great educational website? Then go to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll free of charge. Get a free class 10 Myths of American History when you do enroll. Look, I've got awesome classes there. Classes on the Constitution, classes on the Civil War, classes on secession, classes on American history. A whole slew of great stuff just waiting for you. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com, enroll, and get a real history education. Is wokeism Marxist? Well, we'll talk about that on this episode of The Brian McClanahan Show. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title, read by yours truly. You can support the show, of course, by going to McClanahan Academy. You've already heard about that. Also, if you want to support the show, click on the support tab at brianmcclanahan.com. Go to YouTube and click on the Super Thanks button under the video. Or you can go to Spotify for podcasters and subscribe there. Those are all great ways to support the show financially. But as always, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Let people know you love it. Give it that five-star review. Leave a text review wherever you can. Leave a comment on YouTube for the algorithm. All those things help get more eyes and ears on the show. And send me those show requests. I do want to see what you want to hear. And in fact, this is a listener-generated episode. Someone sent this to me. And asked if I would comment on it, whether wokeism is Marxist. <clears throat> now, this is a really interesting uh, intellectual topic because where does this stuff come from? Right? We've seen this surge in what's called wokeism, and I do think people have a hard time defining what it means to be woke. What is woke? What is woke in the, in 2023? What does it actually mean? And I talked about being woke uh, yesterday. Uh, it's woke is a realization. It's, it's waking up, essentially, to an understanding of the past. And in fact, it is a historical analysis. If you are woke, what it means, of course, in 2023 on the left is that you've now woken up to understand that the United States has always been systemically racist. There's always been, uh, race has always been at the center of the American experience, that black Americans have been very much a part of the central figure, essentially, in American history, and that we need to address these kind of problems, these structural problems in society, that it has been a distortion of history uh, leveled upon uh, the, the American population by people who just didn't want to account for the role of minorities in American history, and that we've had this distortion, again, of American history from the beginning. That the real history of America has been held back from the American population. Now, and it's all based on race. And if you look at the 1619 Project, it is the very definition of woke. It's the very definition of woke because it places African Americans at the center of the American experiment, at the center of American history at the center of everything that's ever happened in America. In fact, they said 1619 is the real founding of America because that's when slaves, African slaves, were first introduced into the British North American colonies. Now, that's a pretty succinct definition of what it means to be woke. 
And of course, within that, then you start branching off from there. Well, if all these things happen, if we've had you know, structural racism from the beginning, if we've had all these distortions of history from the beginning, now we have to address those things through reparations or defunding the police or you know all these things they've come up with. We need to uh, address the 13th Amendment, red line, all this stuff they say is an outgrowth of a systemically uh, oppressive system in America from the beginning. So when you're woke, you're waking up to that. Now, I said yesterday that there is a different kind of woke in America, and that is those that are waking up to the fact that the entire proposition nation has been a myth from the beginning. Now, you could say that the, the wokies would actually agree with that too, but when you say that, what you're waking up to is that Abraham Lincoln is not a conservative, that Abraham Lincoln and, and that particular strain of, of conservatism is not real, that that's a myth, that we've had this, uh, this proposition nation myth from the 1860s that never existed. So in some ways, you would actually agree, and sort of, with the 1619 people. However, what they would say is that, no, 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 the proposition nation is real that nobody's ever really lived up to it. That's been the problem. I would say it's not real. There's never been there. And that Americans really didn't care about that kind of thing. Uh, there were certainly some that did, but most Americans didn't. And the, the idea that the Constitution was somehow you know, established to do X, Y, or Z in terms of race is just completely preposterous. Uh, now, uh, we can we could get into all those different debates, but the important thing is that wokeism is not really Marxism. Now you could say it's a kind of it leads to something that you would call cultural Marxism, but even that would be um, a, a bigger discussion. But cultural Marxism would mean that essentially you're leveling all uh, all cultures and saying they're all equal. All civilizations are equal. That's a, that's a, a rudimentary definition of cultural Marxism. Because Marx, at, at its core, Marxism at its core, deals with uh, different areas, right? It could be a, an economic uh, dichotomy. It could be a racial dichotomy. It could be a, a, a cultural dichotomy, uh, a, a, a gender dichotomy. In fact, Marx is the one who came up with the term racism. Um, and he, this, this idea of conflict between groups is certainly at the core of Marxism. It doesn't matter if you're talking about economics or if you're talking about some other things. It's at the core of what makes Marxism Marxism. You're, there has to be a conflict that leads to some type of solution. And generally, it's an oppressed against the oppressor. So if you're talking about gender relations, for example, then there's male and female, or sex relations, I should say. There's male and female. And then how those things play out in society. If you're looking at economics, there's rich, poor, middle class, if you're talking about race as the oppressed and the oppressors uh, in terms of a, a racial dichotomy, uh, if you're if you're talking about cultures, right? There's a there's a dominant culture and a, and, a, and a minority culture, and that dominant culture is oppressing minority culture. So it doesn't matter what you're talking about. Marxism fits into that because there's always an oppressed and an oppressor. There's always these two different groups of people fighting over an end game, which is power. This is why Marxism has become so popular. It's popular in everything. If you, if you study history, you have all the Marxists looking at all these different things in history from this kind of lens. They're looking at it backwards and then moving it forward. Now, instead of taking history for what it is and trying to understand people, they're always trying to figure out 
an end game, so to speak. Well, it this, 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 this led to this because of this conflict. Now, in some cases, this is true. I mean, you, you can't deny these things. And the Marxists, the Marxist historians, um, in many cases, were much more honest about some things than the new, than the new leftists. But this idea that wokeism is somehow Marxism has become pretty popular. And there was a piece that was published at uh, the uh, at Chronicles by Alexander Riley, Why Wokeism is Not Marxist and Why This Matters. So I want to address this piece. It's a long piece. I'm not going to do the whole thing. But I want to address it because I think this is an important point to make. Uh, when we just simply use these pejoratives, well, that's Marxist, that's this and that, we, we run into problems uh, when, um, when you're trying to argue these things intellectually. Now, that makes for great slogans and, and chants and these kind of things. And this is what the left likes to do as well. It makes it easy. But everything is not always easy and doesn't always fit into a nice, neat bundle. So, again, why wokeism is not Marxist, Chronicles magazine. If you, if you don't read Chronicles, you should. It's a great magazine. But the piece says, on August 2021, on an August 2021 episode of Fox and Friends, Mark Levin chatted with his guest, Paul Kengor, the author of The Devil and Karl Marx. The two talked about the thesis of Levin's book, American Marxism, which argues that the ascendant leftist wokeism in America today is actually Marxist. They agreed that the core of Marxism is, in Kengor's words, the desire to hammer people into categories. Marxists pit, Marxists pit you against one another, and they tell you you are in that group, and you are in that group, and they are your foe. And this is correct. I mean, look, the, the, at, the, at, the, at its core, Marxism does this. You, you create these conflicts. And so this isn't, this isn't incorrect, what they're talking about. Levin and Kengor are correct that the rise of the woke movement poses an existential threat to American society. But opposing it successfully will require correctly understanding the nature of wokeism, and their conversation was an indicative of grave misunderstandings. Human beings have been doing in-group, out-group organizing along national, religious, linguistic, and cultural lines, and using this as a basis for identity and distinction from other groups for as long as there have been human beings. Marx, who was born in 1818, could hardly have invented this game. It is even played by conservatives, and sometimes for good reason. Now, again, very true. Uh, you did have this predating Marx. People would differentiate themselves on these kind of lines, or this group culturally, or this group uh, regionally, whatever it was. People did these kind of things. Marx, though, made it into a, Marx made it into a systemic study of history. And this is where you get into uh, systemic studies, right? There's a, there's, a, there's a historical trend. In fact, as I said, wokeism is a war over history and the interpretation of history and the understanding of the past, which in some ways that's what Marx is doing too. So you can see why you would think these things bleed into one another. Ken Gore and Levin would likely agree that there are important group distinctions, for example, between Christians, Jews, and Muslims. Though conflict is sometimes produced by those groups, this does not imply that the differences themselves could or should be erased. It also does not mean that these three groups are each made up of Marxists, so that Marxists somewhere dreamed up the group distinctions as part of their own nefarious plans. However insufficient the answer they provide, though, the question Levin and Kroger engage must be carefully considered. How much does wokeism share with Marxism? And why do their similarities and differences matter for those who would challenge both? So again, there are similarities in wokeism and Marxism, and a lot of people that are wokeists, wokes, wokeys are also Marxists. 
They are. They believe in a leveling of society. They believe in, in the elimination of what they think are class distinctions, what they think are racial distinctions, what they think are any distinctions that could have an oppressed and oppressor class. That's the, that's the key, an oppressed or oppressor class. But wokeism itself is not necessarily Marxist. It is an understanding of the past. And it's an understanding of the past that is based on an oppressed oppressor, but not in the way that Marx would look at it. The core of Marx's view of human, history, human society, I'm sorry, is the primacy of political economy over culture, the distinction between socioeconomic classes. Again, this is true. Marx is looking more at political culture and political economy. I should say political economy. Um, and that was primary. Marx did get into some of the other cultural things that certain, when you read these things, he certainly addressed those. Again, the term racism comes out of Marx. Um, so, by the 19th century, there was a much more thorough discussion of what race actually meant. And you look at this, you know, the, these distinctions of race, uh, we, we had them before that point. But by the 19th century, we started having this very scientific look at race, the late 18th into the 19th century, and what that was. Before that point, you did, people did see differences. Uh, but to have an actual scientific discussion of these things did not come around to the late 18th and the early 19th century. The individuals who make up society may be empirically described according to many variables. They may have varying religious beliefs. They could have differing ethnic and linguistic profiles. They likely, in 2023 America, display variation in their sexual attitudes, behaviors, and identities. But all of this, for Marx, is secondary. Indeed, secondary is not sufficiently descriptive in relaying precisely how comparatively unimportant Marx found all these cultural categories. What matters, according to Marx, is the relationship of different classes to the means of production. Again, he's looking at a very pure definition of Marxism that was focused only on economics. Now, you could have people that were not Marxist that would look at things like this too, like Charles Beard whose uh, progressive view of American history was focused primarily on economics. So Marx looked at things in terms of class over anything else. And he thought that class economic status dominated and that all these other things were secondary. So you could be any race in this economic class and you had common cause because of economics. All these other distinctions would, would melt away in the face of what was your cause in terms of your economic status in society. So you could have black Americans, white Americans, Asian Americans, Hispanic Americans. If they're all in the poorer class, the economic class, they're going to have common cause against, say, the middle class or against the upper class, uh, whatever it is. They're going to have cause against those people and all those other things should just not even, be a, a, not even play a role. However, those things were recognized in the 19th century as starting to become important. And so you could have a group in those classes themselves oppress another group in that same class because of whatever the distinction might be, whether it's racial, religious, cultural, whatever that was. You could start getting that. So this is where uh, Marx didn't necessarily focus on that, but you did have uh, neo-Marxists start to look at some of these kind of things. So what, what Riley is doing here is looking at this in a very pure stand, pure situation, right? Marx purely is economics. True. You did have Marxists, 
okay, that would start looking at these things a little differently. And there was an influence in all of these different areas in the historical profession and how we started studying these areas because of Marxism. So this, these kind of dichotomies that create power politics. Marx was always interested in politics and power. Do the members of a class own the means of production, the material apparatus from tools or fact factories that are needed to produce goods, or do they not? Answer that question, and you know the dynamics of class relations and conflict in that society. Those dynamics determine everything else. Some conservatives talk about the relationship between ownership of the means of production and control over the realm of ideas in a way that is indistinguishable from the Marxian view. They bemoan the fact that the mainstream media are able to reach a much larger audience and therefore exert greater influence over what Americans think than the conservative media are able to do. But such an assessment only echoes Marx's argument that the social class and control of the means of production will inevitably produce the dominant ideas in a given society. Material conditions of production are always the cause of what Marx referred to as the superstructure, the ideas, beliefs, and values that people hold by virtue of their position in the class structure. So again, at the top, you have the class. These are the people that own everything, right? So they own the means of production. It doesn't matter who they are. They own these things, and so therefore they dominate. The power of mainstream media to exert ideological influence is based on their ability to virtually monopolize the communicative technologies and the apparatus required to get ideas out to a mass audience. So again, it's about uh, economics rather than culture. And so that dominant culture would be secondary, but economics is the first thing. So if you could just get the money to do these things, you could do this yourself. So it really comes down to economic muscle rather than cultural muscle. Culture and economics are, in, are interconnected in complex ways, but they are separable, or, sorry, separable topics. Yeah, Some of the confusion of those who equate Marxism with wokeism stems from a lack of clarity on this point. They note that some Marxists in the wake of World War I began to focus greater attention on culture. This is true, and there were factors in the political context of the day that produced this shift. Many Marxists had believed in the days before the outbreak of the war that the mo moment for revolution was ripe in those Western European societies that represented the heights of capitalist development. But instead of globalist revolution, what arrived was global war on a destructive scale never before imagined. This was followed by the failure of revolutionary communist movements across Western Europe, and finally by the emergence of nationalist political movements and regimes in many of those countries that have been stimulated by legitimate fears of communist agitation. Marxist rethinking was required. So World War I proved that Marxism was not, based on class, was not necessarily going to work. Uh, that there had to be something else. So people started focusing on things that were outside the structure of class. They started looking at culture, race, these kind of things. Um, and what he notes here is that nationalism was used to crush Marxism. That Marxism, and you'll see this, people that talk about secession, right? That secession was a Marxist plot. Because if you can break apart the structure, right? A fifth column, this is what the fifth column, you break apart that that stability and that structure, you created an environment where Marxism can seep in. So a lot of times in the 1950s and 60s, when people talked about secession, they would say, well, this is a Marxist plot to overthrow the established order. Secession became Marxism. Conservatives were those who opposed these things. This is important. 
people talked about this stuff, right? It's now we use terms like neo-confederate or these, but uh, but in the in the middle of the 20th century, secession was viewed as a problem because Marxists were going to do it, and this was what leftists wanted. Even if you look at say the the critique of the independence movements in uh, say Scotland or Catalonia, well they're Marxists. You know you have this this uh, Spanish state, and you have these leftists, Marxists, essentially, who are trying to disrupt that by having Catalonia secede from Spain. Well, conservatives, we don't want to do that, right? We don't want to have these lefties out there that could, that could ferment Marxism. Or Scotland. You got these, these you know, pretty hard left people in Scotland who want to break away from Great Britain. So you always had, for, for well, always, in the 20th century, you had, you had secession equated with Marxism and leftism. Because generally, those are the people that wanted to pull it off. So Riley continues, The Italian Marxist Antonio Gramsci used the notion of class hegemony to understand the failure of communist revolution when the time had seemed so propitious. The bourgeois control of the realm of ideas and values turned out to be too encompassing. There was a required war of position, a struggle to present communist values to the masses so as to permit them to ideologically see through capitalism before the war of maneuver or military takeover of the state would be possible. Gromsky believed that this war was the work of the vanguard communist intellectuals who would educate the workers on their role in history. No revolution was possible so long as the bourgeois domination of ideas existed. Many Marxists in the West thus embarked on an effort to more effectively disseminate the Marxian ideology with the goal of thereby making revolutionary action more likely in the future. Right, So this came down to the role of history and the role of propaganda in trying to get people to understand how the revolution was important. You had to have the intellectual side of this. You had to tell people what they needed to hear. So Riley says, in other words, they saw this work only as the prelude to a full-blown communist revolution. To a man that would have found resible uh, the idea, widespread in wokeism, that adopting the right pronouns and a proper conception of the role of white privilege in forming the Western world could constitute substantial moves toward establishing a just society. Seizure of the means of production was always the goal. So, this was opportunist. They were Marxists, yes, but it was not Marxism. It was something else. Wokeism means that there's a repression. Sorry. So, there is, a, there, is a, there, is a, a, there is an oppressed people, and it can be all these different groups. It can be based on race or identity, whatever it is. But that was always the that was always the prelude to the end game, which was this leveling of economic society, right? Complete egalitarianism. Now, the Soviets would do a lot of this stuff too, and it would come from the top down. And I mean, the Soviets uh, would try to get rid of anything, any vestige of the old old regime, I mean, just like the French were doing in the French Revolution, and. You could say that I mean the Marxists love the French Revolution because they see it as their you know that's their beginning. This was this is the beginning of all of this stuff. So Riley says this is true even in the Frankfurt School. Herbert Marcuse, for example, came to believe that maybe the working classes were too hopelessly reactionary in late capitalism. And this might require looking to other groups, hippies and feminist radicals in the sixties, perhaps, as a new vanguard. But none of these thinkers ever believed that social transformation of a permanent sort could be achieved without the overturning of capitalism. 
Indeed, those in the Frankfurt School who were most ambivalent about such prospects wound up in deeply pessimistic positions. Now, let me, let me say this about the 1619 Project people and Cole Hannah-Jones and some of these Wokies. They firmly do want to overturn the capitalist order. They've said it. What they're doing in that, and, and I think this is important. Riley's trying to make a distinction here. These people might be Marxist, but what they're doing is not Marxist per se. What they're doing is prepping for the Marxist revolution by creating these kind of things to get people interested in this idea of oppressors and oppressed. Wokeism is about oppression. You have been oppressed. They're waking you up to the oppression. But it's not the revolution necessarily. That has to come from the economic order. And once they gain power, they can do that. So he's right that this is a preparation for these things. It's not full-blown Marxism in that it's not talking about the leveling of the economic order. However, when you start looking at things like reparations and stuff, when you start having those kind of discussions, you are talking about the economic order. And to prep that, you have to get people to believe that there have been oppressed people and that American history has been distorted. This is where all this stuff plays in. This is why wokeism is really about history more than anything else. It's about transforming our understanding of the past to fit, to prep people, to make them pliable so that they will believe in the revolution. You see. That's the whole point. So when I say, you know, uh, conservatives have to be woke about what con American conservatism has become, that there isn't really any of that anymore. I mean that, right? If they could just wake up to that and stop believing in the Lincolnian myth, which is to their disadvantage then they will start looking at a different path. This is why I do this podcast. Their analysis of the culture industry reveals how consistent the Frankfurt School was with foundational Marxism and how far from wokeism even cultural Marxism is. It is the penultimate chapter of their Dialectic of Enlightenment. Theodore Adorno and Max Horkheimer describe how music and art function in capitalism solely as commercial enterprises in which artistic success is measured only in sales. Consumers of popular music are drawn to the most formulaic and dumbed-down styles which inevitably carry anti-revolutionary messages. The capitalist myth of rags to riches imbued in such a culture is taken to heart by the masses. Quote, the deceived masses are today captivated by the myth of success even more than the successful are. Immovably, they insist on the very ideology which enslaves them. The result of all this is a mass stupefaction of culture, freedom from thought, and the idolization of the cheap. Ordono and Horkheimer are light years away from the wokest embrace of the most benighted pop culture products, the ones produced by non-whites and their attack on high culture as being nothing more than white supremacy, misogyny, homophobia, and the rest of their dismal litany. So the Frankfurt School's cultural Marxists are not woke, but are wokest nonetheless reasonably classified as Marxists. So he's saying, look, all these, what we do now is not really, the cultural Marxism is not even wokeism. It's not. It's something else. Wokeism is something else. It's it's a celebration of these oppressed groups, right? These things that are that are kind of I mean, he says dumbed down. This is not really the height of culture. It's these oppressed groups, the celebration of sales and popularity and these kind of things. Against what is real in leveling culture. Real stuff is oppressed, good stuff is oppressed. For the stupid. 
But he says, are these cultural Marxists, are are, but are the wokest nonetheless reasonably classified as Marxists? Take as example the spectacle of the recent Grammy Awards of Sam Smith and Kim Petras, the former who identifies as non-binary, and the later who was born biologically male and underwent sex chain surgery as a teenager, were awarded a Grammy for a song titled Unholy, which they also performed at the event. This composition, which perfectly illustrates the Frankfurt School's argument about the vulgarization of music in the culture industry, contains the following chorus. Mummy don't know daddy's getting hot at the body shop doing something unholy. It celebrates, and I'm not going to get this because this is a, a kid-friendly show, but um, it's it's horrible, right? If you've seen this, and it's, it's a horrible uh, display of filth, right? At the Grammys, many of the performers wore devil horns and red costumes and leapt about as if in a state of demonic possession. Many of the audience who also raucously applauded the performers as they accepted their awards were similarly visually aligned with demonic tropes and perversely, uh, perversely hypersexualized appearance, appearances. The Marxist content of such a phenomenon would have utterly escaped Marx, as it does those who have read him. Here is a mass media spectacle, an industry designed fundamentally to sell products to consumers. If there is revolutionary content in this music that can be expected to lead listeners toward a critique of capitalism, the present writer missed it altogether. Again, he's right about this. Marx was always about tearing down the capitalist order, and this is about actually making record sales. But there is an element of, uh, and again, it's about oppressed and oppressors, changing the culture to prep for something else. Marxism, what I think Riley is doing, of saying here, though, but Marxists are never really against enriching some. It's those in power. Marxism at its core, and the fundamental flaw in it all, is that there always has to be though there has to be someone in power. And those in power, this is where Orwell was most prescient about Marxism, there are some people more equal than others. There are some that are always going to be in power and have more resources and more, more money and whatever you want to do. They're always going to be higher up in society. It's just inevitable. He says, it is not even evident that such a message can be consistently packaged in such a product of a capitalist economy. The music critic Grail Marcus implies the same when he laughs at the critics of rock music from the 1950s. He accused it of being part of a communist plot. Every rocker who has ever been born aspires to record the hit that makes them rich. The, 19s, the 1990s rock group Raised Against the Machine focused a sizable percentage of their musical output on explicitly anti-capitalist messaging. The effect of their more than 30-year career on the Marxist movement in the U.S. or anywhere else is almost entirely nil. Yet each of the members of the group has a personal net worth of at least $20 million. Now, um, I, I, of course, I remember when Rage Against the Machine was very popular. And there were a bunch of people who ran around spouting Marxist nonsense, wearing Che Guevara shirts and all these kind of things. There was a, certainly a capitalist element to that, but there was a prepping and I think this is important. This is what wokeism is all about. It's about prepping. You have to prep people to accept these things. And once they accept these things, you can fundamentally transform society. So wokeism is about history. It's about history. It's about prepping for an understanding of the past. Further examples of the comfortable relationship between woke ideology and today's elite capitalist robber barons abound. When former Twitter chief executive Jack Dorsey gave $10 million dollars to Ibram A. X. Kendi's Center for Anti-Racist Research at Boston University, could he seriously believe that the gift might con contribute to the downfall of a very capitalist system that put all that money in his pocket to begin with? Wealthy woke donors know full well that what's going on is, is the 
and the anti-racism industry does not pose a threat to the economic system that made them rich. On the contrary, the most profound threat their wealth-generating system faces today is in failing to be sufficiently woke, thus angering a mob of angry consumers who might boycott their products in retaliation. Again, this is true. Wokeism is an industry. It's about money for a lot of these people, and they're hopping on board a popular movement, and they're going to try to be popular. But the real intellectual muscle behind it is about changing the narrative of society to, to get to a point where you could have economic leveling, at least in some ways. I would say that Americans are never really going to fully embrace the, out, the, the end game of, woke, of Marxism, right? What that is. They just want a seat at the table, and I think that's important to understand. There was actually a an article uh, years ago. You, know, you are too too sentimental, I think, is the title of it. It was a historian, essentially saying that all this stuff about you know Marxism is just garbage. Americans just want a seat at the table. They want to sit at the table and they want power more than anything else. The wokies just want power, and they want to be in a position where they can dole out punishment for those who are not on board with them. Would they like to see more economic leveling? I think so. I mean, you see the Biden proposal, and I don't know how this is going to be implemented, but you know, punishing people with high credit scores, you're getting a mortgage, and, and uh, you know, they have to pay a kind of a tax, and then people that don't have that uh, get a benefit. But, I mean, so there is this kind of leveling that's going on here. Uh, I think that they would like to see some of these things. A full-scale Marxist society? No. I don't think anyone, even on the left, wants to agree with that. Because they like making money. To be sure, wokeism can sometimes play act at anti-capitalist sentiment. Kendi has written that in order to be truly anti-racist, you have to be truly anti-capitalist. But then there is his real life. Thanks to the anti-racist cultural movement, Kendi, a thoroughly mediocre thinker, now writes best-selling books. He can charge tens of thousands of dollars for brief speeches at college campuses. Like his comrades in the anti-racism scan, Robin D'Angelo, Nicole Hannah-Jones, and the leaders of the Black Lives Matter, Kendi is now a millionaire. Again, very true. Robert Nisbet noticed something in his history of modern sociological thought, the sociological tradition, that is almost completely overlooked by the current wave of conservatives who want to equate wokeism and Marxism. In a fascinating passage, he illustrates how much was shared by Marx, another 19th century thinker, who profoundly shaped conservative discourse on the family, Frederick Laplay, or Laplay. The latter undertook the first large-scale empirical study of how family structure affects community strength. Like Marx, Laplay was most interested in the popular classes. Both men understood that economic deprivation was the central component of the social burden of these working-class populations. Both accurately, I'm sorry, acutely criticized how aspects of bourgeois social order exacerbated the socioeconomic pressure these poor families faced. While Laplace's political solution was different from Marx's, it is remarkable to find Marx and an undeniably conservative social theorist agreeing that the base measure of social despair or disrepair in bourgeois democracies had to do with socioeconomic class. Again, this is this is important. If you go back and look at uh, the the agrarians, they're talking more about economics than anything else. What do we need to do? We need to give people land. We need to give people farms. There's a socioeconomic situation here that, that that comes down to it how do we how do we get independent people they have to be economically independent and that will help them with their culture so this is again goes back to think locally act locally you have to be economically independent to do these things if all that's there then none of these other things really matter 
So Riley concludes, getting the, this topic right is not merely a matter of scholarly accuracy. The true nature of wokeism needs to be understood to further the fight against this ideology. Marxism once possessed a significant danger to traditional America, but at present it is not a Marxist anti-capitalist left that most threatens our society. It is a wokeism perfectly happy to consolidate progressive business monopolies with massive economic power of individual lives. This includes corporations, especially those controlling communication technologies that can profoundly shape the ideology of young American minds by promoting the woke agenda to annihilate traditional Western values and morality. Uh, again, so what, what Riley is actually arguing is that wokeism is actually fascist. It's a fascist ideology. It's kind of a, I mean, almost a, I mean, it's, it's something different. It's not really a Marxist. It's more of a fascist situation. And you can see that. Uh, they do dabble. I think a lot of these people are play communists. They do dabble with this kind of stuff. And they firmly believe that uh, that communism would be there. But again, some people are more equal than others. And they don't think that their power will be diminished because they would have the control. And this is what you saw in the Soviet Union. What they really want is Leninism, not Marxism. They want Leninism. Remember, Leninism is the situation where you had to have the vanguard, right? Lenin figured out, well, these people aren't going to lead themselves. Somebody has to lead them, and it has to be the, the intellect. I mean, you had others too, but Lenin politically figured this out. And so they're always more, I mean, Stalin, Lenin, these people lived very, very nice lives in, in the Soviet Union. In exchange on this topic, Jason Morgan at the New Oxford Review insisted that Marxism was originally demonic. The spiritual violence evidently shared with the Participants in the pseudo-satanic mass in the, at the Grammys and their fans and acolytes elsewhere is for Morgan the defining characteristic of Marxism. By this reasoning, Antifa, Nancy Pelosi, neocons, and serial companies trying to turn little kids into gays and lesbians are all Marxists because they are all products of the same satanic rebellion against God. It is quite true that the outcome of all communist states modeled on Marxian thought was hell on earth for those trapped in those societies, but it is pragmatically unhelpful to define the Marxian vision in this matter. As Nisbet knew, there is some ground, however limited, that traditional conservatives share with Marxists in their mutual concern about the economic domination of ordinary Americans by a small and culturally distant elite. This is true. There is that part of it, right? Uh, Marxists, the, 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 uh, the Sears exchange between Khrushchev and Nixon, I think, highlighted this a lot in the 1950s. When Khrushchev was touring a Sears of Richard Nixon, and Nixon said, look at all these great appliances. This means that women don't have to stand in the kitchen. They can go out and get a job. And Khrushchev said, why would we want women to do that? We want our women at home having babies, right? That's what we wanted. And um, that showed you that the, the right that Nixon was advocating was something entirely different than a traditional right in America. course Nixon was looking at it as you know comfort and these kind of things but uh, th this distinguishes both camps neatly from the wokists who are supported by that elite and frequently are themselves members of it this fact can and can and should be exploited when possible in the real political work of defeating wokeism so pointing according to Riley pointing out these people are elites and they're they're part of this you know kind of a fascist order is more important than saying they're Marxist saying that they're actually fascists would be better because they're a cultural elite, they're a political elite, and we need to look at this as class-driven, not anything else. So I wanted to cover this piece. He has a, a paragraph here, but I wanted to cover this because I thought it was interesting 
uh, and his Riley's perspective of what wokeism was. And again, somebody sent this to me, and I thought, well, that's that's a pretty good uh, topic. Uh, as I talked about yesterday, though, the, the neocons uh, and you know the fact that there isn't really a, a real right, that's also being woke in America. It's a different kind of woke, but it's a wokeism is a historic movement more than anything else. It's about defining what history means and the nature of history. And there is, in some ways, uh, an elimination of one group. It's about power more than anything else. And I think Riley does get that back, get that correct. So I'll see you tomorrow on the Brian McClanahan Show. See you then. Mm-hmm.